The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good day, America. Welcome Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution not to see who's on the right or the left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S. occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at Sons of Liberty Media.com, and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative Word of God, glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so, sonsoflibertyradio.com and also sonsoflibertymedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right, you can see the face that's made for radio. Head over to sonsoflibertymedia.com, and there you're going to see two videos at the top of the page. The one on the left side is Bradley's show from yesterday. So if you miss that, you get a, <clears throat> excuse me, you get a chance to watch it up until 3 o'clock this afternoon, at which time he'll be live in that area. And a new topic. Well, actually, he's, I think he set it up for what he's going to talk about today. <laughs> he does that, doesn't he? He gets to the last segment, sets it up, and then there's no time. Uh, so I think he set it up. So if you didn't see yesterday, go back and watch it, and that way you'll be ready for today. All right, Lord willing, he's going to continue in that. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button, blow up on whatever device you got. Look for the rumble icon. Bottom right-hand corner, click on that and join us in the chat on Rumble. We've got a lot of friends over there this morning. Good morning, guys. Good to see you. And uh, while you're over there, please subscribe to the channel, Sons of Liberty Radio Live, Sons of Liberty Radio Live on Rumble. And then we're also over on Before It's News, top of the page there. And I appreciate those guys giving us a spot on their platform as well. SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, right up under where we're streaming live is where you can sign up for our email newsletter. It's on the top right side of the page under the live stream. Um, sign up for that. That goes out once a day, late afternoon, early evening, all the articles we have, including the Morning Show Archive. By the way, if you're looking for yesterday's Morning Show Archive, uh, I had several things that were going on, and uh, I didn't get to post it. So I will be posting that first thing this morning, along with today's, Lord willing, that's what we're going to do. All right, um, <clears throat> real quickly... Our store is available. You can get to that right off the top of sonsoflibertymedia.com or by going there directly at thesonsofliberty.squarespace.com. Thesonsofliberty.squarespace.com. And uh, don't forget to put the in front, the Sons of Liberty. It's not just Sons of Liberty. It's the Sons of Liberty.squarespace.com. Go over there. We've got the bundle package on Soldier of the Cross. You get a book. You get a T-shirt of your size and a dog tag in silver or black. $34 or $39 if you're double X or larger. The shirt's also $20. 
double extra large or a little more. The books you can pick up for $10 a piece, Soldier of the Cross, as well as all the profits are pointing to the front. And then finally down here at the bottom, Sons of Liberty, Dog Tax, and Silver and Black, they're $8. Uh, be sure to pick up some of those. I know some of you guys are already doing like gift shopping. All this, all this, all these holidays, holy days, that's what they're called, holy days. The Bible didn't set them up as holy days, but you know, men have done that, so you got to ask kind of where, where the authority is for that. Anyway, I know a lot of people buy gifts and all that kind of stuff, and people are doing it now. So if you want to get gifts, I guess, you know, knock yourself out in our store. We'd love to have you over there. All right. Okay, this morning, <clears throat> I have told you about what happened to me, maybe not in great detail, but I'm going to unleash a, a monologue here. Uh, a friend who's gone to be with the Lord uh, since this time, David Lutzweiler. I'm going to be playing the very first DVD I edited, and you can tell it, okay? But you guys will be able to hear what he's saying, because that's largely what's going on. There'll be some um, there'll be some visual stuff in here. And this is definitely going to run over the hour, so I want to make sure that everybody knows that. If you want to watch it, if you're listening by way of the radio and you want to watch some of the visuals that do come in here, some of them are, are important. Some of them are just sort of the cover up, you know, staring at a guy talking. And um, <clears throat> But he lays out C.I. Schofield. Now, many people may not know who C.I. Schofield is. He's going to inform you on that, but he's he's largely responsible for promoting what is the theology that we term as dispensationalism. He's the one who popularized it. Okay, he's the one uh, from Hal Lindsey to John Hagee to all of these guys uh, that, that just get stuck on Bible prophecy and stuff like this, you know. Uh, he's the guy who popularized it. And there were guys who came before him. And uh, his notes in his Schofield Bible were largely used to promote this theology in our political realm that has hamstrung the church. It's hamstrung the United States. Look at what we're in right now. We have a guy that we're told is a Christian, Mike Johnson. He can't wait to be speaker and go fund Israel. I ask, where is that in the Constitution? It is not there. And he's doing it if you really break him down, I'll guarantee you, if we could get Mike Johnson on for an interview, you'll find out he believes modern-day Israel over there, the Antichrist state of Israel, led by Zionists, not, we're not even talking about Jews. We're talking about Zionists over there. He believes they're God's chosen people. I'll guarantee you if, you, if you went down the road with him, that's what you would come to. Despite the fact, Ephesians 2, despite the fact of Galatians 3, despite the fact of what Paul says in both Romans 11, where all Israel is saved, he's not talking about a, a geopolitical state. He's not talking about a, a certain people with a certain pedigree back to Abraham. He's talking about the people of God. All of Israel is going to be saved. That's absolutely true. So <clears throat> this is going to be a little different than normal, but uh, I have... Fast forwarded past the first six or seven minutes, you know, it's introduction. My friend Jerry gives an introduction as to what's going on. I want to jump right to the meat and potatoes of what uh, David Lutzweiler is promoting. Now, by the way, I didn't bring this up, but David does have uh, a book on this particular subject, and I, I meant to look it up and see if it was uh, um, still still available. Um, and so let me do that right quickly. 
I just want to see because when we were at Nicene Council, we put out uh, his book, and I'll, I'll show it to you. I don't know if you can still get it. Yeah, you still can't pick it up here. There may be some people who have it. They say there's a, pri- a paperback from 1079. Uh, from from ten dollars and seventy nine cents, so maybe you can still get it. This is the book, "The Praise of Folly: The Enig- Enigmatic Life and Theology of C.I. Schofield" by David Lutzweiler. And um, so, I'm assuming you can still get it because they still have a button here. So, if you want to pick it up at Amazon, maybe you can find it somewhere else. Uh, I use the Amazon because it's easier for me to find stuff because they just have everything there. But I put it up. You guys can get it there, or you can source it however you want to do it. And it's called "The Praise of Folly." Um, on C.I. Schofield by David Lutzweiler. And I'll drop this link here in the chat. You guys can check it out if you want to do that. This is just the written version of what you're going to hear here. So with that said, and without further ado, I'm going to play David Lutzweiler. This is the, we titled this video, C.I. Schofield, The Man, The Myth. So it's largely going to be Schofield, but you're going to get some information about Israel that I think for many of you, if you don't know that history of how they were set up, who was involved, and the evangelicals that were in this, even in the 1800s, uh, I think you're going to be enlightened to that. I hope it will be beneficial. I, th- I hope it will be helpful to you in understanding the times that we live in and what I call the delusion of Israel, because what we see as modern-day Israel is not the biblical Israel at all. Um, if you are in Christ, if you have the faith of Abraham in the Christ, then you are a part of Israel. You are of the children of Israel. You are a child of Abraham. You are a child of God. Um, so keep that in mind as you watch this. This is David Letzweiler, C.I. Schofield, The Man, The Myth. I want to thank you all for coming today. And uh, if you're going to give two full hours of your valuable time, I come to think of something that I heard from A.W. Tozer, which Jerry mentioned in his introduction. I worked for Dr. Tozer for two years. He called me to be editorial assistant on the Alliance Witness. And one day, he came to New York City on one of his periodic visits, and we walked into a bookstore in Times Square, because the headquarters of the Christian Missionary Alliance in those days was on 8th Avenue and 44th Street, just around the corner from the New York Times building, and a block down from Broadway. So Tozer and I walked over to a bookstore in Times Square, and I remember a comment he made. He says, I never go into a bookstore without getting the bookstore blues, by which he meant that he saw so many books he would like to read, but he knew that one lifetime isn't enough to learn everything that you want to learn. So he had the bookstore blues, and that is something I keep in mind whenever anyone is going to give their valuable time to listen to anything I have to say, because what it means is this, that all education is necessarily a selection because we can't learn everything there is to learn. So we have to prioritize what we're going to give our time to learning. So the question is then, if you're going to give two hours to listening about C.I. Schofield, is there anything there that is really worthwhile enough to justify the investment of two hours of your time? And I think there is, otherwise I would not be here. Reminds me of one of Murphy's laws. Murphy, of which you've heard of famous Murphy, one of his famous laws is that only fools learn from their mistakes. The truly wise learn from the mistakes of others. Let them pay the price, you get the benefit. But of course, I think now Lutzweiler's corollary of that is that the truly wise learn from both. You have to, because 
we all begin life as fools, and we all make mistakes, and we all suffer the consequences. Proverbs says, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. We all begin life as children, and foolishness is bound in our hearts. So we have to learn from both. But if you're going to learn from the mistakes of others, you read biographies. And so we have a biography of Schofield to consider. And is there anything we can learn from it? Yes, I believe there is. And as Jerry said in his introduction, our purpose is not to promote gossip or scandal-mongering or to just exhibit the flaws of Christian leaders. It is rather to learn lessons for our guidance and as well for our inspiration. So I want to mention six spiritual lessons which are the heart, the core of what I want everyone to take from what I present in my research on Schofield. Six major lessons, all of which you have heard and they're very simple, but we need to have them reinforced and reminded of from time to time by living examples. Here are the six spiritual lessons and I'll just list them briefly and you'll see as we go through Schofield's life how each one is proved. First one, very simple, and it's, I think, the most encouraging of all. God uses imperfect people. And that's very obvious because there is no other kind. We are all imperfect. We all make mistakes. And yet God blesses us because in his sovereign grace, he has chosen to use the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. But the second lesson that we must draw from that is God's use of and blessing upon an imperfect servant is not an endorsement and approval of everything that that imperfect servant said or did. And that is an important lesson when we come to the life of a man like Schofield or anyone else, any other great servant that has made mistakes. Many people make the mistake of saying, well, he, God used them, so we should overlook this. Well, that is true up to a point, and I'd like to make this further modification of the first lesson. God uses imperfect servants, but some, as Orwell said in Animal Farm, some animals are more equal than others. Some are more imperfect than others. There are some things that, and some things, a lot of things that God overlooks. But he can't overlook everything because otherwise the work, his work and his purposes would suffer. There comes a time when God says enough. He says even of the woman Jezebel in the letters to Revelation, one of the letters he says, I gave her space to repent and she repented not. So I will cast her into a bed of tribulation and those who commit fornication with her. So God does overlook a lot, but he won't overlook everything. Some things are too serious to be overlooked. We see that in the life of King David. We see that in the life of others in Scripture. Third lesson follows from this one. Whenever we do see an error in theology or a drifting away into uh, wrong conduct that is serious enough to be damaging and intolerable, we have a duty to expose it and correct it. And that's, again, another flaw that the church, I think, we will see has made in the case of Schofield. In other words, I'm saying here that we have a duty to do some judging. 
And of course, everybody will say, you're judging, I have had people say this to me, you're judging Schofield. They're absolutely right. But that's not a contradiction of our Lord's command in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, or Paul in Romans 14 who said the same, or James in chapter 4 said the same thing. There are other scriptures that say that we have a duty to judge. Paul himself in Corinthians says, even though I am not physically present with you, I have already judged in this matter about the little case of immorality that was going on there. And he says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged of the Lord. He's saying we have a duty to even judge ourselves. So we have a duty to judge Schofield. And I have the perfect antidote, I think, to solve this problem of when to judge and when not to judge. What's the wrong kind of judging? What's the right kind? I think when you go to a store and see a label, Better Business Bureau, BBB, I have another set of three simple words to re that you can think of every time you see that, and it will solve the problem of judging. It's this, beggars, beneficiaries, benefactors. Beggars, we all are beggars. Paul says, what, have you what do you have that you have not received? Psalm 100, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Every one of us is a Christian because we have come to the realization that we are spiritual beggars. Blessed are the poor. The, the, uh, the Greek has two words for poor. Penury, which is um, a poor but has something enough to eat, but they're just in a lower class. But tochos is absolutely a beggar, has nothing, sitting by the side of the road, having only what other people give him. Blessed are the tochos, the beggars in spirit. That is what we are. And when we realize that, we will have humility, and that will condition the manner in which we approach all other beggars. Now, we're not only beggars, but we are beneficiaries. God has not left us to be beggars. All of us have received something. And what have we received? We've received grace. We've received supplies. We've received the meeting of our daily needs. And why has God given us this? Because he is working out a purpose through us. He has designed us to be benefactors of others to share what we have. So to me, what sums up my life is beggar, beneficiary, benefactor. If you have the consciousness that you are a beggar, you have humility. If you have the consciousness that you are a beneficiary, you have gratitude. If you have the consciousness that you have a duty to be a benefactor of others, you have obedient Christian service. To me, that sums it all up. And that means that when we judge in the scriptural sense, we are one beggar helping another beggar to become a better benefactor. That's the type of uh, mentality or mindset in which we want to approach this. Now, why is it important to make these corrections? Why do we have this duty to be judging? And what is it that determines whether or not an issue is serious enough to merit action to justify the judging. My fourth principle here that I think we uh, have to understand, and many people don't, but many people do because it was explicated very clearly many years ago by a man named Richard Weaver, and he wrote a book called Ideas Have Consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences, good ideas have good consequences. And we will see that some of the ideas in dispensationalism and that Schofield promoted in the Schofield Bible have very bad consequences. 
One of the worst that I will focus upon in the second part of our presentation is Zionism. Christian Zionism is probably the most serious error of the dispensational system. I'd just like to pause here and say even this word, dispensationalism, is the wrong word. Uh, I've gone over this in other places, and some people are already familiar with my view on this. Dispensationalism is the wrong label for the system of theology that goes by that name for this reason. There is nothing controversial about the division of redemptive history into successive periods of time in which God introduced new covenants. Beginning in the Garden of Eden with the Edenic covenant, the period what is called the dispensation of innocence, and then after the fall coming up to the dispensation of conscience, and the, which lasted until the flood, and then with Noah and the Noachide or the Noachian covenant, either form of the adjective is correct. You have the dispensation of human uh, government, and that lasted until the promise when the call came to Abraham and God gave the covenant to Abraham, and so we have the dispensation of promise. And that lasted until the Mosaic covenant at Sinai when we have the introduction of the dispensation of law, and then, of course, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ radically transformed everything, the creation of the church. We have the dispensation of grace, and then at that radically final consummation, consummation event, the second coming of Christ, we'll have the introduction of the eternal kingdom. So we have seven dispensations outlined in the Schofield Bible, and there is nothing really wrong or controversial or destructive about them. They're, they're all perfectly valid. Innocence, conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, kingdom. Covenant theology is dispensational in that sense, they recognize the progressive covenants of God. And furthermore, dispensationalism is also covenantal theology because the dispensationalists recognize all of these covenants, the promised Abraham, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant in Christ, the covenants are the benchmarks that identify and define those dispensations. So what's the controversy? The controversy is over the specific nature of especially the last three of those covenants, law, grace, and kingdom, and also over this. And this is why I think the theology of dispensationalism should be called, more accurately, dual covenant theology, because they make a distinction, and I'm at the point where I am calling it a heresy, a heretical distinction between the church and Israel. That is the crux of the matter. That is the real issue. That is the intolerable error and one of the ideas that has had devastating consequences, as we will see. What are the consequences of that? Which, and that's why I will take it up in more detail in the entire second lecture, because it is of such importance. Here are the two intolerable damages that the error, the bad idea, the bad consequences of this bad idea have had upon the Christian church. They are of two kinds, mainly. Money and missions. Ever since the creation of the modern state of Israel in 1948, evangelical Christians who have been deceived by this and who have thought that the creation of the modern state of Israel in 1948 is a fulfillment of prophecy and they are God's chosen people, whom we have to support because this will hasten the coming of our Lord, 
Christians have given in the last 10 years, according to one authoritative source, Zev Shavitz, a match made in heaven, American Jews, Christian Zionists, and one man's exploration of the weird and wonderful Judeo-Evangelical Alliance. In this book, Zev Shavitz shows that in the last 10 years, well, this would be in the last 12 years, now it would be even more because the book was published a couple of years ago. Evangelical Christians have given to the modern state of Israel, mind you, are you ready for this? $200 million in donations. And the estimate I've seen in another source, which I don't have here today, but it's credible. Ever since the creation in 1948 of that state until today, which is now over 50 years, 62 years, the total given by Christians is $2 billion. That's in addition to the tax billions uh, uh, which the United States government has given. So money that could be going to starving Christian missions has been diverted from those needy Christian missions. And any of you who are supporting any wonderful Christian works that are showing great fruit on the mission field and are crying for an extra $10,000 or $20,000 to buy a van or to pay salaries for missions. And they have these Christian workers going out into a field that is literally white unto harvest and they just need a few thousand dollars. And then I look at this $2 billion. Can you blame us for feeling a little bit upset? This is the money aspect, but it's worse. There's the missions aspect. It has affected the philosophy of the evangelization of the Jew and has even canceled some of the evangelization motives of the Jew. And I have a quote here from an essay that providentially came into my hands. My brother sent me from Professor Ant Greenham at Southern Baptist, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina wrote an essay on the Southern Baptist missions in the Levant, that's in the Palestinian area, the Middle East, from the late 19th century to the early 20th century, when the Zionist movement was just building, when Theodore Herzl was agitating for the Judenstadt and before the creation of the modern state of Israel. But evangelicals like Schofield, but even before Schofield, William E. Blackstone, known as W.E.B., who wrote that famous track, Jesus is Coming, and another uh, evangelical missionary called William Heckler, uh, were uh, dealing with these Jews. And at that time, Theodore Herzl was thinking of Uganda as a possible safe haven where all the Jews of the world could come and escape persecution. But W.E. Blackstone, William E. Blackstone, sent Herzl a copy of the Bible with passages in the Old Testament highlighted and annotated, saying to Herzl, no, the only acceptable land that you can have to establish a modern Jewish state is where it originally was in Israel. And uh, Herzl took that, and that's why he and the other Zionists in the Zionist movement uh, focused on uh, Israel because they were convinced by an evangelical Blackstone. And there is today a memorial to Blackstone in Israel, thanking him for his contribution to the creation of the modern state. But then Ant Greenham went on to show other things about this influence. He said, the position of 
these evangelicals like Heckler and Blackstone and a few others uh, uh, whom he mentions, which I won't go into detail here, was that we should not try to evangelize these Jews like Herzl and win them to Christ, but rather our primary mission is to settle them in the land of Palestine. Herzl was a little apprehensive that Heckler was going to try to convert him to Christ. And Heckler quickly relieved him of that apprehension by saying, no, that's, that's not my ambition. I just want to help you get settled in Palestine. Here is what uh, Ant Greenham says in his essay. This was not the position of all Christian supporters of Zionism, however. As noted above, Heckler did not feel called to convert Herzl. In fact, he saw the restoration of the Jews to this land of Israel as a primary Christian responsibility. David Rausch goes so far as to speak of, quote, a new concept of evangelism, unquote. Get that? A new concept of evangelism? Since when? Since the first century did God say, We're, I'm going to introduce a new concept of evangelism other than the Great Commission Christ gave us? David Rausch goes so far as to say that support for Israel... Okay, are you guys noticing, I hate to interrupt here, but are you noticing the problems already with what's going on here? Uh, it's changed the whole gospel. Now the Jews don't need to be evangelized. Their evangelization is bringing them into the land these people have distorted the scriptures to, to support. Israel and the Jewish people, even in unbelief, the dispensationalist fundamentalist encourages Jews to return to Israel and to hold on to Israel because it is, quote, the plan of God dictated in God's infallible word. God's infallible word misunderstood, as we'll see more clearly in the second lecture. Blackstone demonstrated a similar conviction when he addressed a Zionist group in Los Angeles in 1918, informing them that they had three options. Now get these three options. First, accept Jesus. Okay, you don't have to go any further, but no, he has two more. Become true Zionists or assimilate into local cultures. However, the thrust of his remarks clearly favored Zionism, not accept Jesus. He took the second one. In contrast, Gabeline, that's A.C. Gabeline, who was one of the co-editors of the Schofield Reference Bible and a longtime bosom buddy of, of Schofield, Gabeline cautioned against cooperation with the Zionists as their undertaking was one of unbelief, demonstrating anything but dependence on God and his word. Gabeline also made it clear that a Jew's essential need was a personal saving faith in Jesus. Thank God for Gabeline's insight there. However, it would certainly appear that a number of Christian supporters of Zionism ran the risk of subjugating or uh, subordinating the evangelical imperatives to enthusiasm for only a return of the Jews to Palestine. Ideas have consequences. This is a consequence that is intolerable. It is not negotiable. It is not something on which we can agree to disagree. And it is one of the fundamental teachings of the Schofield Reference Bible and other things, of course, that he wrote. Schofield exerted his influence mainly through the Schofield Reference Bible, but there were two other uh, things that he wrote that also influenced it. That was his correspondence course, which was taken over by Moody Bible Institute in 1914, and his first publication called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. 
which is the title's taken verbatim, of course, from 2 Timothy 2.15, and many have said correctly, and I'm one of them, that it should be titled, Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth, or another one has suggested, Wrongly Dividing the People of God. So anyway, ideas have consequences. That's the fourth lesson. God uses imperfect people. His use of them is not an endorsement or approval of everything they said or did. We have a duty to expose and correct them when we find them at an intolerable level, and that is because ideas have consequences. But now here's Lutzweiler's corollary to Weaver's ideas have consequences, or as I put it sometime, another BBB, beliefs beget behavior. Uh, what he means by ideas is not just ideas, it's what we come to believe, the ideas we believe. He means beliefs. And when he talks about consequences, that's a general word. I th he's talking about the consequences in our behavior. So my, even though conservatism, this became one of the fundamental uh, pillars of the modern conservative movement. Uh, Weaver's ideas have consequences. Weaver was a professor of English at the University of Chicago. Lutzweiler's revision, which is not as elegant, but I think more accurate, is another BBB for your Better Business Bureau. Beliefs beget behavior. Wrong beliefs beget bad behavior. So you can add that to my beggars, beneficiaries, benefactors, and every time you walk into a store, you'll think of Lutzweiler's lecture here. I want to go on to add then Lutzweiler's corollary to Weaver's ideas have consequences. Ideas not only have consequences, but ideas are consequences. That is, they not only are causes of effects, but they are themselves effects of another cause behind them. For this I have CCC. Character conditions comprehension. That is, people of bad character eventually are going to come up with the bad ideas that affect millions of people, or can affect them, as Schofields did. In the letter to Titus, Paul says, a man who is a heretic after a first admonition and give him a second admonition, reject. Don't deal with them any further, because knowing that such a one is subverted and sinneth. He's making a direct connection there between character, he's subverted and sinneth, and his concepts or his beliefs. He's a heretic. He said the same, Paul said the same thing in a letter to Timothy when he said, the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. Three things. Love that comes out of three things. A good conscience and faith unfeigned. And he says, which, and the pronoun which there is plural, meaning it's referring not to love. The end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart faith unfeigned and a good conscience, and people have rejected those three things. They've rejected the pure heart, the good conscience, the faith unfeigned, and which they, having rejected, have gone off into Jewish fables and genealogies which gender strife. And later on in verse 19, he said the same thing. He said, holding faith and a good conscience, which... Again, the pronoun which now is singular and refers back only to conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith have made shipwreck. Here again, in three different passages, Paul makes a connection between character and beliefs, or doctrine. Bad character leads to bad ideas. 
Now I gave you BBB, I'll give you CCC, and then we'll go on to Schofield's life and show how he exhibits all of these. Character conditions comprehension. I say it conditions it, it doesn't determine it, it conditions it, it influences it. CCC. So I've given you BBB and CCC, and every time you go down the interstate you see a semi and you'll see it many times, Crete Container Corporation. Think of today's lecture, character, conditions, or you, you can think of uh, Civilian Conservation Corps or uh, uh, Continental Can Corporation. Character, conditions, comprehension. And that is what we will see in Schofield's life. The th that's the fifth lesson. The sixth one I'll focus on in the second lecture, and it's just this, I'll just mention it briefly. The truth sometimes lies. I heard somebody talking about, well, the truth lies between two extremes. And it occurred to me, no, the truth never lies at all. And then I thought, no, that's not true either. Sometimes the truth does lie. How? Well, did you ever hear the story of the uh, ship's captain who rode up in the log when he found the first mate drunk? First mate drunk today. And the first mate wanted him to take it out of the log because it would hurt his record and his standing, but the captain wouldn't do it. So in retaliation, the next day, the first mate wrote in the log, Captain, sober today. Now, was that true? The captain was sober, but what does it imply? It implies that sometimes the captain is drunk and therefore it's noteworthy to note that he's sober. Now you can take a true statement and truncate it, cut it off at both ends and just have it stated as a fact, and it will imply something else. We'll see this, how this is done in Scripture and Schofield's very adroit use of making the truth lie. Partial truths, in other words, what we're talking about. We have to avoid convincing deceits. One of my favorite quotes is from Charles Boss Kettering of the Sloan Kettering Institute who said, logic is an organized way of going wrong with confidence. One of my favorites is from Francois La Rochefoucauld, who was a French essayist in the 18th century, who said, some deceits are so convincing that not to be taken in by them would argue poor judgment. Or I like to summarize it as saying, some deceits are so convincing that anybody who isn't fooled by them, like everybody else, will seem to be stupid. And that's why some of us in the Reformed tradition seem to be stupid to dispensationalists, because they have been fooled by some very convincing deceits. And I'll show how that works more in the second lecture. But now let's turn on to Schofield's life and show how uh, he began and how he exhibits uh, these first five lessons and then eventually the sixth. Schofield was born uh, August 19, 1843, and that would be, as we speak here, 167 years ago. And he died uh, on July 24, 1921. So his life spanned the entire rise of the modern Zionist movement and, of course, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. He was an unsaved man for the first half of his life. He was converted or professed conversion. We'll talk about that later. That's one of the major points of controversy that we will be focusing upon. He was converted at age 36 in the year 1879. But for the first half of his life, the first 36 years of his life, he spent first as a lawyer, 
And then he went down in disgrace. He was the youngest attorney general ever appointed by U.S. Grant, uh, the youngest state's attorney general at that time at age 29 after he uh, became a uh, lawyer. Uh, he uh, was in that post for only six months before his basic mercenary uh, character began to come to the surface and he was always after money and he spent a lot of time in financial swindling. He fought in the Civil War. He was born, well let me recount a, a little bit better this way. He was born in Michigan and he moved when he was about 16 or 17 years old to Lebanon, Tennessee, just about 30 miles west of Nashville to visit his sister and it was while he was there, which was 1859-1860, that the Civil War was brewing and he joined the Confederate Army, served in the Confederate Army, fought in the Battle of Antietam, went through that bloody battle without a scratch. And he uh, then went on after the war to live in St. Louis where he married Leontine Saray, a wealthy French uh, family, and then moved to Kansas where he entered politics. But because of a scandal in his office, he had to resign in disgrace. And one of the scoops in my book is filling in the missing years that occurred just then. It, he resigned in 19, 1872. And between 1873, when he left Kansas in disgrace, and 1877, when he shows up in St. Louis with more scandals, no one knew where he was, although Canfield, in his biography of Schofield, says there were rumors of a jail term in Canada. Well, we now know one of the few uh, things in my book that are not found in any other book, uh, I don't have a copy here, is filling in the details, we know now where Schofield was in those missing years. He was in Wisconsin. Uh, a, an attorney by the name of Jeff Dunn, who uh, in Texas, who is a friend of my brother's, providentially did the research with our modern internet uh, communications and research engines, found the newspapers in the Milwaukee Sentinel that detailed Schofield's scandals in uh, the Milwaukee area in Wisconsin in that period. And then he uh, w was uh, brought back, uh, extradited to St. Louis to face more charges of swindling in St. Louis. But in spite of this a checkered career, uh, financial swindling in the first half of his year, he professed conversion in the year 1879 under, he says, under the ministry of Tom McFeeters, a Christian attorney who was about uh, uh, 27 years old at the time, about 10 years younger than Schofield. Now, it is Schofield's conversion that is the first problem we encounter here, and then we'll go into more detail of his post-conversion life. But here is the problem. In uh, the uh, life story of C.I. Schofield, which is the first biography of Schofield that was written and published in 1920, based upon entirely interviews that Charles G. Trumbull, the editor of the Schofield, uh, Sunday School Times, had with Schofield, in this, Schofield gives his testimony as being converted in the law office of Tom McFeeters, a Christian attorney who was well known as a very a vibrant witness for Christ in those days. And he does not mention the fact that there are other accounts, well, he does mention, he says to Trumbull that there are so many different accounts of my conversion that I've given up trying to reconcile them, so he's, he's putting here the definitive testimony. I thought, so many other accounts, how did they arise? Well, they arose because of the scandals that Schofield had been involved in. The reporters wrote up these stories and they mentioned the fact that he had professed conversion while in jail when being visited by a, 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 a Christian worker from a mission. 
Another scoop that is uh, not in my book, but which has come to my attention again through my, the good uh, graces of my kid brother, James, who was the archivist at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Dallas. I have something here that you will be hearing for the first time uh, and others who will be listening to this lecture, the Lord willing, later. My brother found in the uh, accounts of, uh, in the archives of the Central American Mission, which Schofield founded, a letter that a missionary in Costa Rica had written to Schofield just about uh, a year before Schofield died. It's dated December 16th, 1920. And in this letter to Dr. Schofield, my dear brother in Christ, this uh, missionary from Costa Rica says this, after 10 years alone, I met you at the, or excuse me, after 10 years since I met you at Dr. Brooks's church, of which I was a member, that would be uh, James H. Brooks, uh, uh, under whom uh, Schofield received some private tutoring, perhaps you will have forgotten my name. I could not easily forget the blessings received through you and others at the conferences held at Dr. Brooks's Methodist Church, YWCA Hall, Y, he says YWCA, I think he means YMCA at those days, etc. I remember especially your address at Dr. Brooks on a Christmas morning in the course of which you gave an account of your conversion in a mission on Washington Avenue and guiding in the truth through, Mr., uh, through Dr. Brooks. I have recounted it many a time in uh, gospel meetings in several places. Here is a missionary who heard Schofield give a testimony of conversion in a mission on Washington Avenue, a totally different conversion story from what he told Trumbull in this book about being converted in the law office of Tom McFeeters. Moreover, in this conversion story that he gave uh, of being converted in the law office of Tom McFeeters, he gives the impression, as you read this story, that Schofield, being a lawyer, was on an equal level with the lawyer Tom McFeeters, and they were just doing business together as two honorable lawyers. There is no mention of the fact that at the very time that Schofield was converted, he was going through court cases for fraud and forgery, and that he was dealing with and a case of abandonment of his wife and children back in Atchison, Kansas when he left the office of Attorney General in disgrace after serving only six months because of a, a allegations of bribery. He skipped town and left Leontine, his wife, and their two children at the time back in Atchison, Kansas, and went up to Wisconsin. He abandoned them. While he was in Wisconsin, the newspapers report also that one of the scandals was that he was romancing a local girl and that uh, he had skipped town by not paying the hotel bill, and he had left the girl to pay the bill for him, and so they caught up with him, and there are other scandals uh, that he tried. He was trying to uh, pull scams of uh, claiming to be uh, own many uh, wealthy properties down in South America, and he was borrowing money against this fictitious, you know, the typical scams that con artists uh, will pull on gullible people. All of this was going on and none of word of it is in here. Now here is the testimony that Schofield should have given. I was living a life of dishonesty, of financial swindling, 
of abandoning my wife and children. But the Lord came to me and showed me that I needed a change, that all this was wrong. And, you know, you would go through the typical Christian conversion of repentance and faith and a changed life. We do not have that dramatic change here, that ringing testimony from Schofield. The best thing that he confessed, and this we're not sure that is even true, he, he said that he was delivered from a life of alcoholism. He says to McFeeters, doesn't the Bible say something about drunkards, McFeeters? You know, there are no drunkards in heaven. I have a bad drinking problem. And so McFeeters, of course, gave him the right answer. And he says that I bowed his, in McFeeters' office and took Jesus into my heart. And the Lord delivered me from uh, the, the uh, addiction to alcohol. But what about the scandals? That was the card that Schofield never played. And what about the abandonment of his wife and children in Atchison? That was a card that he never played. We never hear a word of that. Now, in spite of that, Schofield went on to become licensed to preach. And here is another revelation in my book that you won't find anywhere else in which uh, I am indebted to Jeff Dunn and my brother for bringing to my attention. The newspapers also reported at that time that Schofield's license to preach had been revoked and that it was reinstated after about a year while he was candidating at the church in Dallas, Texas. Now, why had his license to preach, which had been granted by the Congregational Church shortly after his conversion in St. Louis, why had it been revoked and it was in suspension for over a year and it was still in suspension while he was called to candidate at the First Congregational Church in Dallas, Texas, where he was eventually ordained. The license was uh, reinstated while he was there. That is another item that was missing from the first biography, we, we should call it a hagiography, of Schofield. And the documentation for it is in my book. So as I say, there are some very serious questions here about Schofield's conversion account. And yet, we can't deny that there was a major change because he did leave off the financial swindling. And it's my position that he exchanged a life of financial swindling for a life of theological swindling. Because in the last half of his life, that's the post-conversion part of his life, we find still more problems arising. We don't find a clear-cut break between the past and the future. Now, I agree totally with all of the evangelicals who point out that all of the scandals of Schofield's life before his conversion are irrelevant. If a person has a genuine conversion experience of Christ and they go on to grow in Christ after that, the past is forgiven and forgotten. The question that arises is, how strong was the conversion experience of C.I. Schofield when we have three at least three different accounts documented of his conversion and that is followed up by further questionable practices after his conversion, which cast a doubt upon the reality of the conversion profession in the first place. Here are they are. Number one, he never acknowledged to the board, as far as we know, the grounds of divorce. Now, here is something about Schofield that is unique. At the time that he was going through his ordination by First Congregational Church in Dallas, Texas, it was at the same time that Leontine had filed for a divorce on the grounds of abandonment. 
of her and the children back in Kansas. It's the only time we know that a, a person is being ordained to the ministry while simultaneously in the middle of a divorce action. It hadn't been settled yet. It was still going on. Nevertheless, in the middle of that action, Schofield was ordained, and two or three weeks after he was ordained, the divorce became final. And three months later, he filed a marriage certificate for one of the members of his church and had a second marriage, which, of course, is contrary to the, the uh, standard of ordination of Scripture. It must be the husband of one wife. How much of his story did Schofield reveal to the First Congregational Church of Dallas? We have no way of knowing, but there's only two options, and both are bad. Either he told them the truth, Yes, I'm going through a divorce now, and the grounds of the divorce are abandonment of, of my wife and children. Well, in that case, the, the ordination should have been put on hold until things were squared away. And even if they had been squared away, he, if, if the grounds for divorce were valid, he would not meet the grounds for, uh, he would not meet the standard for ordination. But the other option is, if he did not tell them the truth, then he covered it up or lied. And that's bad because then he would not have been ordained, uh, uh, or he, he got, or excuse me, he, he was ordained, but he was ordained under false pretenses. And my feeling is that that is the latter. I think that if he had uh, opened up to the board at that time, the board would have had enough sense uh, to hold the ordination in suspension. He never would have been ordained, and the whole history of the Christian church after that would be very different. Nevertheless, after that, he went on, and a few years later, in 1891, he granted himself a D.D. degree. On the title page of this, you'll see uh, by the Reverend, edited by the Reverend Dr. C.I. Schofield, D.D. That D.D. was never awarded. He awarded it himself. Now, there's another recent book on the Schofield Bible by uh, R. Todd Mangum and Mark S. Sweetnam, The Schofield Bible, Its History and Impact on the Evangelical Church, published by Paternoster. This book came out at almost the same time as mine, so I didn't have time to see it and use it, and they didn't have time to see mine and use it in theirs. But in here, they questioned, Sco uh, Can Canfield was the first one to bring out the fact that Schofield awarded himself a DD degree, couldn't find any record of it, and it was not mentioned in his who's who uh, record. And they say that Canfield makes the amateur's mistake of uh, taking absence of evidence for evidence of absence. I disagree with, uh, of course, Mangum being a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, we can expect him to be biased in favor of Schofield. I think they're mistaken here. First of all, Canfield was not an amateur. He's a very uh, experienced uh, researcher and scholar. But when you fill out an entry for DD, or for, for uh, Okay, all right, I want to pause this a second. We've got to close out on the radio. We, we've still got about 50 minutes left, and we're going to get into some of the stuff of Israel, but you're going to be amazed at what you hear about Schofield and the fact that evangelicals, Christian men, hold this guy up as somebody to be lauded. You can already see there's problems. There's more. Hang on. Come on to sonsoflibertymedia.com. Finish up with us. Bradley be with you at 3, and Lord willing, I'm going to talk to you in the morning at 6 a.m. Adios. Okay, want to welcome everybody coming over from uh, Red State Talk Radio. And uh, guys, I, I'm, I'm telling you, David's been gone for several years. This was done back in like 2011, 2012. 
Okay, so this is more than a decade old of what I'm showing you. And I apologize, there's these little pops in there. That must have been something I didn't even pick up on that until I'm listening to it now. And I've watched the thing at least two or three times uh, in putting it together. But uh, th this information has largely been kept from the church and the society at large. And you can see, once he starts getting into the issues of Israel... Once he starts getting into the the issues of the theology that's termed dispensationalism, what you're going to see is you're going to see why we're at the stage we're in. When he said ideas are consequences, that's exactly right. And the scripture warns us about that, doesn't it? It talks about people who, who um, <clears throat> maybe they say something's going to come to pass, but they lead you after a God you have not known. You're not to be afraid of them. Schofield's one of those guys. I mean, he is the Simon Magnus of, of the, the 20th century. Uh, he, he is that guy. Uh, he, he wants certain, and you're going to hear some bizarre stuff. Any of you guys are familiar with D.L. Moody, great preacher out of uh, Chicago? Uh, Schofield decided he was going to correct him on something, and it is one of the most bizarre things you're going to hear. And Lutzweiler's going to cover that. But I'm going to let. David, just go ahead and finish out everything. So I appreciate you guys' patience. It is informative. Trust me, there is some there's some more eye-opening things coming here, and I'm going to let David do that. Here he is. For the uh, who's who, they have a form, and the form includes categories, education, any degrees earned, honorary. There is no way that Schofield, knowing uh, that he was a self-promoting man, could have overlooked this DD degree if it had been authentic and had been awarded because he made other misrepresent, self-serving misrepresentations in his uh, entry for the Who's Who entry uh, that was published in 1912. And he, uh, for instance, took his Cross of Honor award that was awarded by the Daughters of the Confederacy in 1898, late after the war, as, as a token of appreciation for all those who had served in the Confederacy. The, it's called the Cross of Honor, and it was given to everyone who had served honorably. Schofield lists it in his Who's Who, awarded Cross of Honor, uh, <coughs> Cross of Honor for bravery at Antietam, as though it were, you know, a special medal. This was a perfectly dishonest, self-serving statement, which shows that if he had any valid DD degree, he would not have omitted it. He omitted it in the who's who for uh, 1912, and he omitted it in the Presbyterian directory, uh, <clears throat> which uh, he filled out later. I should mention the Presbyterian directory. He felt that the congregational church in which he had served for many years was going modernist, and so he broke with them on the issue of modernism and joined the Presbyterian church in, in Texas, and therefore his name was put into the Presbyterian ministerial directory, and in filling out the entry for that, he does not have a DD degree. Because why? You would have to give the school that awarded it, and that could be traced. So he left it out. So he faked his DD degree, he had, was divorced unbiblically, going th he was ordained unbiblically while he was going through a divorce. He misrepresented his Cross of Honor award. And in the second lecture, I will go into the exegetical buffoonery, uh, which we will see exhibited in his books, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth, and uh, in other uh, publications that he made. I want to sum up by saying that, again, God uses 
imperfect servants. Now we're going to see imperfections in Schofield's biblical abilities. We're going to see imperfections in his life. And yet, God used him to found the Central American Mission, which has had a very fruitful and notable ministry ever since. God used him to found Philadelphia, what was then called Philadelphia College of Bible. Today it's Philadelphia Biblical University. Over the years it has trained literally thousands of pastors, missionaries, Christian workers. True in the dispensationalist tradition, but the fact is God uses imperfect people and those people have been used to promote the vast Christian missionary assault on the heathen world for many years, many decades. We have to admit that. Jesus, in his letters to the seven churches, always began by listing the good things. I know thy works, thy patience. You've been faithful to my word. You've done this, you've done that. But I have this against you. And then he lists the criticisms. Let's do that with Schofield. Going back to the first lesson, God uses imperfect people. God used him to found the Central American Mission. God used him to found the Philadelphia College of Bible. God used his writings to at least get people started in Bible studies, which eventually led to their fruitful service. A.W. Tozer was one of them. Philip Morrow was another. They eventually came to reject the dispensation system, but they got their start in it. God used them, but... Our second lesson is God's use of that is no endorsement or approval of everything they said or did. And the third lesson is we still have an obligation to expose those errors and to correct them because that's the only way to make progress and advance God's kingdom. That is why we are here. I'll take up more of this in the second lecture. Thank you. I'd like to begin this part of the presentation by telling a story from my experiences as a courier for a medical laboratory. That's one of my other jobs. That's the job for which I get paid money. This job I get paid in satisfaction of just uh, doing the Lord's work. But I go around and pick up the blood and other medical specimens from doctor's offices and hospitals. When you go and get your blood drawn, I'm one of the people that comes and picks it up, takes it back to the lab. So one Saturday, I was on the route and I came to a doctor's office where I had been coming for many years. But this time, the lockbox was not out. The office was empty, and there was a sign on the door that said that Dr. X had moved to a new location at 100 Healthcare Drive. This was in Sparta, Tennessee. I didn't know where that was, but part of my job is to deal with situations like this and find them. There was a pharmacy next door, and I figured he knew everything about what was going on with the doctors in town, and I was right. He said, yeah, Dr. X has moved to Healthcare Drive, which is just about a mile down Sparta Road here. You'll see it on the left. They've built a big stone waterfall decorating the corner, and you can't miss it. And turn left there, and he's in a new building back there. So I did, and I followed his directions. It was exactly as he said. I went a mile down. I saw the waterfall. I saw a sign, Healthcare Drive, turned left, and went back and saw the new building. Now, actually, what I found was a new building 
completely finished, few cars in the parking lot, nice paved parking lot that came to a straight edge end, and then on the other side there was another building under construction that had no paved lot, it was a lot of construction rubble in, in the uh, uh, lot, and there was a cement truck backed up to the entrance pouring the concrete for the entrance. Windows were crisscrossed with tape. And I applied here a principle of epistemology that is found in the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. You remember when Sherlock said in the Boscombe Valley mystery, I believe it was, to Watson, when you have eliminated the impossible, my dear Watson, then that which remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. Now I had here two options. One was impossible. So where was Dr. X? He was in the new building. So I went around looking for the lockbox. The building was locked, everybody was gone, even though there were some cars there. Knocked on the door, nobody answered. So I left my card that said, sorry we missed you, uh, we'll, your next pickup will be on Monday, and I left. And uh, when I got to work on Monday, uh, my supervisor, Tina, asked me uh, what had happened with Dr. X's pickup on Saturday, and I told her what had happened. And uh, she said, well, they called, and uh, they, they complained that their pickup was missed. So I went into more detail about the story of what I had found. And it was at that point that I obtained the, one of the very best lessons that I think I can give in this presentation, or any presentation ever, about how you go wrong with confidence. And it will apply to our analysis of Christian Zionism today. Tina said, Dr. X was in that other building. I, I said, what, you mean the building that was under construction where, where the cement truck was backed up pouring the concrete deck? She said, yes, he was in that one. That's impossible. So we went into more detail. How, how could that be? Now, Tina was not angry. I didn't get in any trouble with this. It's a perfectly understandable mistake. The explanation is this lot was on a slope on a hill, and there was a ground floor in the back, and they had finished the lower floor in the back, and they were finishing the construction on the visible top level where I could see it. The lock boxes were around back. And I said, you mean the, the patients are driving over that rubble, the, the, the unpaved parking lot, and going around back and going in the doctor's door for treatment? She said, yes. So next Saturday I went there, and sure enough, it was exact, this building still wasn't finished, and it was still exactly as she said. Now, why am I telling you this? It's because it's an illustration, of one of the best illustrations you can have that I can think of, of going wrong with confidence or La Rochefoucauld's premise, some deceits are so convincing that anybody who isn't fooled by them, like everybody else, will seem to be stupid. There are some things in life in which you think you are absolutely right and you could not possibly be wrong, but you are. Observe the two kinds of knowledge here, and I'm doing this because this is addressing what every dispensationalist and Christian Zionist is going to throw at you. 
we know we're right because the Bible says that God gave the land to Abraham and his seed. Don't you see that? There's no way that we could be wrong about that, but you are. I'll show you in a minute. My first conclusion that resulted in the mixed pickup was what we could call inferential knowledge. I was inferring from a set of circumstances and drawing a conclusion. But now I also feel that I know positively, I would use the word infallibly, where Dr. X's office is. But that knowledge is not inferential knowledge, it is direct empirical knowledge that is irrefutable, is undeniable. It's based upon the involuntary structure of your mind. It's direct knowledge, not inferential knowledge. Inferential knowledge, unfortunately, or maybe I should say fortunately, is correct maybe 90 or even 99% of the time. It's that, that's what sets us up for the fall at that 1% when it's wrong. And we go wrong, as uh, Boss Kettering said, with total confidence. Or I think Sherlock Holmes also says in another uh, uh, one of his adventures, or Doyle says it through the mouth of Sherlock, there is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Now I'd like to give a couple of examples other than Christian Zionism as a run-up to this. I want to show how this works, not just in Christian Zionism, but this is a common error. You'll meet it. I'll just give two examples and a couple from Schofield and then focus on Christian Zionism because I believe Christian Zionism is the most important error, the most destructive error that we have a duty to refute today because of the money and the missions. I've already mentioned the two billion dollars that have been diverted from Christian missions into this, what I would call the pseudo-Israel since 1948. And I mentioned, of course, the perversion of the gospel approach to Jewish missions that was uh, in the first presentation. Let's look at 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. That's a famous misunderstood passage. No prophecy, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. And many people have quoted that to say, see, you've got to be careful. You can't interpret prophecy on your own. It's not of any private interpretation. And the Catholic Church, in fact, uses this to defend the supremacy and the authority of the papacy in interpreting Scripture. Lutzweiler is saying to you today that this verse does not say anything at all about the interpretation of prophecy. And people will say, what? Is Lutzweiler stupid? Doesn't he see the word interpretation there, see? And doesn't he see the word private? And doesn't he see, it says no prophecy is of any private interpretation? And he turns right around and says this has nothing to do with the interpretation of prophecy. You're looking at the obvious. Now if you could read this in the Greek, you wouldn't be making that mistake. There are two words here that you're choking on. It's that little two-word preposition of and you're ignoring that next little conjunction, but. This verse is talking about the source of prophecy. No prophecy of Scripture comes from any private interpretation. That tells you where it's not from. But, 
Now this tells you where it is from. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This verse is not teaching about the interpretation of prophecy. It's teaching about the source of prophecy. And it says that prophecy did not come from the prophet's own private interpretation of history and current events and giving his own ideas of what the future is going to hold, but rather he's they spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 is teaching the same thing as 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, another one. 1 Corinthians 15.22. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And I have here an exhibit... I'll do what Rush Limbaugh does. I have an exhibit of a man who says, Folks, don't you see? Scripture itself says that in Christ all shall be made alive. And that means that everybody is saved and the gospel message is simply telling them that they are saved and don't yet know it. And it's just announcing to them, in Christ you will be made alive. Nobody's going to be lost. We have universal salvation. Here it is. And I have this essay that this dear brother took off on 1 Corinthians 15.22 and teaches universal salvation as in Adam all die in Christ shall all be made alive. How can you deny it? It's obvious. There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. The dear brother is choking on that expression made alive and he's ignoring the context. The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is on the resurrection. And what Paul is saying here in context is that as in Adam all died, so in Christ all shall be resurrected, including the wicked dead as well as the righteous dead. This dear brother is overlooking all of those passages, like in Daniel 12, that says, Many that are asleep in the earth shall awake, some to everlasting righteousness and some to everlasting contempt. And he's overlooking, of course, the Lord's uh, teachings in Matthew about the, the, when uh, the last judgment uh, is given, the sheep and the goats will be one on his right, one on his left, and some will be sent into everlasting judgment. This dear brother is choking on those words, made alive. He thinks that means saved. The words here, made alive, don't mean all shall be saved. It means all shall be resurrected. And he has the idea that, well, Christ is going to raise only those who are his, and I guess the devil is going to raise those who are his. Not so. The devil doesn't raise anybody. It is only through the power of the risen Christ that all shall in the grave shall hear his voice and will be raised but doesn't mean they'll all be saved it's talking about the resurrection my dear brother not salvation but he has been deceived but you see how easily so this person's perfectly sincere and he has just as much confidence in this perverted gospel message that he's preaching as i had that dr x was in that first finished building he's, he can't see how he could be wrong well Schofield made some of these mistakes. Here is the first publication, the most, one of the most influential that Schofield ever wrote. He wrote it in 1888, only nine years after he was first saved, and the only education that he had was private tutoring from uh, Pastor James Brooks of the Washington and Compton Avenue Baptist, uh, Presbyterian Church in St. Louis. 
And in rightly, <clears throat> rightly dividing the word of truth, Schofield makes one of these same mistakes. His whole book, and in fact the whole dispensational system, became based upon this ludicrous interpretation. In this book, Schofield says, very uh, correctly at first, that in 1 Timothy, the believer is presented in several characteristics. He's called a son, a servant, a soldier, an athlete, a husbandman, a workman, and so on. And with each of these characteristics, there is a, uh, an exhortation that goes with it. And then he starts out, okay, uh, sounds plain enough, and there's nothing objectionable. And he says, in 2 Timothy, he is told what is required of him as a workman. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, the very next sentence is this, and it causes your jaw to drop. The word of truth, then, has right divisions, and it must be evident that as you cannot be a workman that needeth not to be ashamed without observing them, without observing those divisions, so any study of the word which ignores those divisions must be in large measure profitless. And I thought, is this guy serious? The word of God has divisions. He's, and he's making this refer to the dispensational divisions and different covenants. And I thought, Schofield... You never learned the Greek. The word here translated rightly dividing is orthotomia. It just means straight cutting, and it's talking about the skill of the workman. It's not talking about the fact that the Bible has divisions. You have totally misunderstood this verse, and yet he's doing it with total confidence because, again, he is not a well-trained Bible student. And he goes on, and builds his system on this, and he gets off on the wrong track right at the very first start because uh, he begins his uh, booklet here with chapter 1 on the Jew, the Gentile, and the Church of God. The very first chapter goes off the rails with a similar misunderstanding of the divisions of redemptive history. So let's go on and show a couple of other examples of Schofield's biblical incompetence, and then we will show, we'll narrow it down to the Christian Zionist. In the Schofield Bible, the first, uh, the 1917 edition, we're reading in the story of Ahab and Elijah and the servant of Ahab in the king's household, Obadiah. And it says in Scripture here in 1 Kings 18, uh, uh, verse 3, and uh, Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for it was so when Jezebel was uh, uh, cutting off the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. That was at great risk to his own personal life. Obadiah was uh, greatly feared the Lord. Now, if you were reading this without the Schofield notes, if you were just reading this in a plain text, your assessment of Obadiah's character would be what the Holy Spirit gives here. He greatly feared the Lord. He was a godly man. The heading that Schofield, the great Bible scholar, puts on this passage is, a believer out of touch with God. Obadiah is a believer out of touch with God. And here's the comment in the margin. 
In such a case as the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, a believer's true place was by Elijah's side. Obadiah is a warning type of the uh, servant of God who adheres to the whole, whole world, uh, to the world while uh, seeking to serve God. And I thought, did Schofield ever hear of those in Caesar's household who are witness for Christ? And see, did he ever hear of uh, Daniel serving in the court of the pagan uh, Babylon? Did he ever hear of Joseph uh, serving in Egypt in Potiphar's house? And while I was driving again in, in my work for uh, the, the lab, I was listening on Sunday morning, because sometimes I have to work on Sunday, to Dr. Donald R. Hubbard. And Dr. Donald R. Hubbard was preaching on this passage, and he had the courage to say on the air, and this is how I got my attention called to this. He read this, and he said, you know, I have to take issue with the Schofield Bible on this point. <laughs> Donald R. Hubbard was willing to disagree with the great Schofield on the air in a message and say that Obadiah was and indeed a good servant of the Lord, and he held him up in his sermon as, as a, an example of how we should live in this world. But here is another example of a man who is not being led by the Spirit. Now, in the biography of Schofield that was written by Trumbull, Trumbull being, a, it has to be said, a sycophant, an admirer a, uh, uh, of Schofield's. He was blinded by his admiration uh, for him in the Schofield Bible. In this book, he makes the famous, I should say infamous quotation, that the Schofield Bible was God-planned, God-energized, God-guided. Those are the exact words from this book that, that Trumbull used for describing the Schofield Bible. He stopped just short of using the word God-breathed that is in 2 Timothy 3.16. But he did say God-planned, God-energized, God-guided the Schofield Bible. Well, I don't think God was guiding Schofield in this comment on Obadiah. I don't think God was guiding his exposition of 2 Timothy uh, 2.15. And I don't think God was guiding him, and this will be the last example I give. And when he uh, said to uh, uh, Gabeline, let's see if I can find it here, uh, that Paul in heaven had no head. Oh yes, here it is. Uh, Gabeline, who was uh, mentioned before, one of uh, Schofield's associates and one of the co-editors of the Schofield Bible, relates the story of how uh, Schofield corrected D.L. Moody. The great evangelist D.L. Moody was a great influence in Schofield's life. It was while Moody was, in fact, doing his St. Louis evangelistic campaign in 1879 that Schofield was converted, and Schofield went around the, the city with a, a board, uh, uh, like a sandwich board, hanging on him, advertising the meetings. And, and Moody called him eventually to be the pastor of Moody's church in Northfield, Massachusetts. And Gabeline recounted in Moody Monthly an anecdote of how Schofield corrected the great D.L. Moody on a point of eschatology. Moody himself needed at that time a better knowledge of prophecy, and Schofield was the man to lead him into it. Yeah, right. Schofield told us that after he had assumed the pastorate in East Northfield, he heard Moody preach a sermon on the life of Paul. Moody described at the close of his sermon how finally Paul died the martyr's death. 
The executioner came to his cell, and willingly the great man of God put his head upon the executioner's block. One powerful stroke, and the head rolled off. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Paul found himself in heaven. The Lord met him and put a glittering crown of gold upon his head, which Paul has been wearing ever since. Schofield said, I felt that I must set him right on this. So when the proper opportunity came, I asked Mr. Schofield in a few simple questions. Mr. Moody, please tell me how the Lord could be putting a glittering crown upon the head of the Apostle Paul. Now get this. When he had no head at all. The head of Paul was in the Roman prison. The body of the apostle was buried. Only his spiritual part appeared in the presence of the Lord. Paul was absent from the body and present with the Lord. Mr. Moody declared that he had never thought of that. And so I asked Mr. Moody to take his Bible, and we read together 2 Timothy 4, 6, 8. I explained to him the coming of the Lord, that it will mean the resurrection of the righteous dead, and that only then, when 1 Corinthians 4, 16 is fulfilled, will Paul receive a body like unto the glorious body of Christ and receive his crown. These remarks brought blessing to Mr. Moody and led him to a better knowledge of prophecy. Paul in heaven had no head. It was in the Roman prison, and therefore he could not receive his crown of gold. I thought, did uh, Schofield ever see that passage in Revelation about the uh, martyrs who were seated in thrones in heaven and crowns were given to them? I exhibit this, I don't have to go any further, to show the level of competence. This is a man who was allegedly the editor of a Bible of such scholarly competence that it was suitable for leading the whole worldwide church of God in the correct paths of exegesis. When you add up his rightly dividing, his slander of Obadiah, this nonsense about Paul having no head in heaven, and a few other examples I could give if I had time. Uh, well, I'll give one more. In Hebrews chapter 6, that very controversial passage, he has a footnote in the Schofield Bible that says that... Uh, the, this passage does not say that they had faith. Well, excuse me, Cyrus, it does say that they had faith. It says, leaving the doctrines of faith and repentance from good works and teachings of baptisms and resurrection of the dead, let us go on to maturity. I submit that it is impossible to leave a position from which you have not first arrived. So if he's saying to these believers, leaving the doctrines of faith and repentance of dead works, and so on, it means that those believers had already arrived at that position, and they were in danger of retreating and going back to Judaism, but he's exhorting them to go on. And when he says in the footnote, the passage does not say that they had faith. Again, there is a clear oversight, I take it, that he is not uh, uh, being very a careful observer of Scripture. Now, with all this as background, it's easy to understand how the movement called Christian Zionism has gone off the rails. In the first lecture, I gave the character comprehension, uh, comp character comprehension connection, the character conditions comprehension. There's a character flaw here, but there's more than that. Not everyone who goes off the rails and has a wrong interpretation of a verse of Scripture is making that wrong interpretation because of bad character. I don't want to leave that impression. That's often very much a part of it, but it's only a part. 
The other part is the part that I'm talking about now, about how easily we are deceived by the obvious. And the obvious is sometimes wrong. And with that, I'd like to approach the Schofield interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant. That Abraham was given the promise there in Genesis 15, and it's repeated, of course, in places in the Psalms and in the prophets, that because Abraham obeyed the Lord, the reward was that he was going to bless him and make him a blessing. And not only through him would his seed be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, but there was a land grant included in this promise. He said, lift up your eyes unto the plains here and he, as far as you can see. And the Lord said, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, all of this land will I give you and your descendants or your seed. And people read that and again they make the same mistake that Paul made in or that uh, Schofield made in Rightly Dividing, the same mistake that our dear brother made in As an Adam, all die, so shall all be made alive. They take that to mean that every physical descendant of Abraham has a divine title to the land of Palestine. I'd like to point out that that is an inference, and as it happens when we discover our mistakes. We discover our mistakes because we learned that there was other information that we didn't have at the time that comes to our attention and that proves finally the truth. And that truth is fixed and we don't have to retreat from it. We know positively what it is. Here is the other information that the people are missing that I see. They are importing into this promise that God stated to Abraham three words that God never put in there. They are doing it unconsciously because they think it's obvious. Here are the three words. They think that God made this promise to all of the seed. The first word is all. The second word is only. And the third word is physical. Let me read or quote the promise as they understand it, inserting these three words. And you'll see how it makes perfect sense to them. Abraham, to you and to all of your physical descendants and only to them will I give this land. All, physical, and only. Now God never said that. There is a principle of Bible interpretation that even the dispensationalists accept and that I was taught at Moody Bible Institute, one of the premier dispensational institutions of the day. The Bible is its own best interpreter. We had a saying, it's amazing the light the Bible sheds on the commentaries. Well, let's apply that rule. I agree with it. The Bible interprets that promise to Abraham. And in, G in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, tells us what the seed of Abraham was. In Galatians 3, 19, he tells us that the seed was only one person, and that was Christ. Uh, it's the famous verse that says, What purpose then serves the law? The law came in alongside 
to make the transgression uh, more plain. He says, in 3.19, it says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of the transgression till, get this, the seed should come to whom the promise, that's the Abrahamic promise, was made and it was ordained by angels at the hand of a mediator. That would be Christ. The seed, Paul says here, that God had in mind when he gave the promise to Abraham was not all of the physical seed and only the seed, but he says the seed was Christ. And of course, this is the same passage in which Paul says, and he says not to seeds as of many, but to seed as of one. That the only seed of Abraham who inherits the promise and who fulfills that promise is Jesus Christ. And then how does everybody else get in? Well, it's very simple. All those who have the same faith as Abraham, the same faith in Christ that saves us, are placed, it says in Ephesians, into Christ, or we become members of his body and joint heirs with Christ. So it is only in Christ that anyone can participate in that promise to Abraham. All who are in Christ are also counted as the seed. And that is the theme, of course, that Paul develops more in Romans chapter 2, where he says they are not a true Jew who are of the uh, uh, flesh and whose circumcision is of the flesh, but he is a true Jew who is one of the, of the spirit, whose circumcision is of the heart and not of the flesh. And in chapter 4, he goes on and says that if we belong to Christ, if we have Abraham's faith, then we belong to Christ. And if we are Christ, we are joint heirs with him. We share in the inheritance which includes the inheritance of the land. Therefore, when these Christian Zionists say that an unbelieving Jew, just by virtue of his DNA, just by virtue of his physical descent from Abraham, is entitled by divine authority to possess that land, they are being deceived by the obvious. I have one more uh, exposition to give on this to prove this in the book of Revelation Schofield says in a famous comment that the church after chapters 2 and 3 when Jesus gives the uh, the risen Lord gives the letters to the seven churches Schofield has this comment that the church does not appear in the book of Revelation again until the very end well again we've learned by now that Schofield is not reliable. The church does appear in the book of Revelation, all through the book of Revelation, under different symbols. In chapter 7, we have another famous passage that is used by the Christian Zionists, and that is that famous 144,000, the 12 tribes, chosen 12,000 from each of the tribes. And they are called by the dispensationalists 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams who will preach the gospel during the seven-year or some say three-and-a-half-year Great Tribulation. And it is as a result of the preaching of these 144,000 Jewish evangelists that the great multitude is 
saved who appear at the end of chapter 7 when John sees another great multitude of no man could number as the sand of the sea and the angel asks him do you know who these are and he says no and the angel says these are they who came out of the great tribulation that's the only place in scripture by the way where the expression e Thlipsis e Megali, the tribulation, the great one, or translated the great tribulation, appears. The only place. And Paul says in Acts when he was leaving the uh, Ephesian elders, the, the believers at Ephesus, he said, we, he reminded them that we must through much great tribulation enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say we must through the great tribulation, but he did say great tribulation. I think it's referring to the same thing. But they say anyway that these are 144,000 literal evangelists, literal people, 12,000 from each tribe. I would like to show you now just briefly that there is no possible way that this can be a literal 12 tribes. Again, deceived by the obvious, very few people have taken the trouble to analyze carefully the list of names. I call it the, rost, the tribal roster here in, in Revelation 7. The only way to pick up what the significance of this roster is, is by going back to the original birth order and tracing the different tribal rosters that are given in Scripture and comparing it. Now, let me stop here for just a minute and say, Henry Ford said, Mental work is the hardest work that anybody can do, and that's why so few do it. There is a certain amount of drudgery that is the price that must be paid for accurately understanding the Word of God. God says in the book of Proverbs, if you search for wisdom as for hid treasures or buried treasure, how do you do that? It takes a lot of sweat, a lot of time, a lot of digging. A lot of frustration. You dig and you don't find it. You try to go somewhere else and dig there. You find some map. It takes a lot of hard work. Bible study in the deeper and the deepest possible sense is hard work. It's drudgery. What I am going to present here now, a lot of people will not get because it is drudgery. But I'm just saying I went through the drudgery and it paid off. I wrote an essay, which by the way, I'll send free as an attachment to anybody who wants it. I email. I call it God's True Israel. What I did when, many years ago when I read this and I said something's wrong here with this interpretation of I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to start at the beginning. And I went back to the original birth order of the tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. And I wrote them in order. And here's the first surprising thing that many, well, it'll be surprising to many when they hear it. We all are familiar with the phrase, the 12 tribes of Israel. What 99% of the people don't know is that even though there are 12 tribes, there are 14 names. How can you have 14 names for 12 tribes? Well, it's very easy. Some people may be 95% or 90% know that Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So that the tribe of Joseph is divided. And sometimes 
the names of Ephraim and Manasseh are used in place of Joseph. So whenever you have a roster, as I prefer to call it, or a list of the 12 tribes, you actually have two versions of the list. One version, which you can call, I call it the primary roster, is the original birth order of the 12 children, beginning with Reuben and ending with Benjamin, the least. But whenever you're going to include Ephraim and Manasseh in place of Joseph, you now take out Joseph, that leaves 11, you insert his two children, Ephraim and Manasseh, to, to, to represent that tribe, now you have 13. 11 plus 2 is 13. So in order to get a list of 12, you have to take out one more. The one that's taken out usually is Levi, because he was the priestly tribe. Now, what I did then, the next step in my drudgery was, I went through the entire Old Testament and picked out every list, every passage in which a tribal roster was given, such as the first one there in the beginning of Exodus, the names of the children of Israel that came out of Egypt. And I put them on a chart, and I made a comparative chart. And I found that there are 22 rosters in, in the Bible. There's 21 of them in the Old Testament. There is only one tribal roster in the New Testament, and that's this one in Revelation 7. In order to get the clue to what is going on here in Revelation 7, you have to compare that roster with the other 21. Drudgery. Deal with it. You either deal with it and you'll come to the truth, or you won't deal with it and you'll end up giving hundreds and thousands of dollars, as John Hagee and many others do, to the modern state of Israel because you're deceived. What you find out is... You cannot mix this roster with Joseph and one of his children in the same roster with him because that makes no sense. And if you look at this roster in Revelation 7, you will see that Joseph is listed as one out of which 12,000 are taken. And Manasseh is also listed as 12,000. Now I ask the dispensationalists and the Zionists, how can you take... 12,000 out of Manasseh, which is the same thing as 12,000 out of Joseph right there, and then have a separate 12,000 out of, quote, Joseph. You've already taken 12,000 out. It is incoherent. It does not make sense. But that's only the beginning. It says here, the Holy Spirit said that these 144,000 consist of 12,000 taken from every tribe of Israel. Now that word every cannot be true here in a literal sense. The Holy Spirit means this in a symbolic sense, as I'll show in just a second. Why cannot be every? Because when you look at this tribe, this, this hybrid roster, which is different, totally radically different from any of the other 21, all 21 in the Old Testament can be literal, and they are literal. But this one cannot be literal for that reason that, that I just mentioned, but also for this reason. 
There's one tribe missing. You have only 11 tribes represented. Why? Because you've made the mistake, and a quote, it's a deliberate mistake that the Holy Spirit has inserted here for the purpose of alerting us to the fact that this is not to be taken literally. Because he has mentioned Manasseh and Joseph in the same list, and there are 14 names, there's one tribe missing, and that's the tribe of Dan. And Ephraim, of course, the other son of Joseph, the other half of the tribe of Joseph is missing. So what you have here is not a list of 12 tribes, but only 11 actual tribes, if you were to take, try to take it literally. And that means that the word every is another indicator that the Holy Spirit does not mean this to be taken literally. Now, if it's not literal, if it's impossible for this to be taken literally, but it is symbolic, of what could it be a symbol? Well, I ask you, how many candidates do you have for the position? We already know from the previous 26 books of the New Testament, before this, that the church is called the true Israel of God. Paul calls that in the last Galatians chapter 6, I think is around verse 10. As many as live by this rule, peace be upon them, and even upon the Israel of God. That's the one specific place where Paul says that the church is the Israel of God. He also intimates it in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, where he says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So we have two Israels there, actually three. We have the composite Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, was divided into unbelievers and the true Israel uh, who were believers. And Paul makes a distinction there between those who are true Israel and those who only are Israelites in name. That Israel is the Israel into which Gentiles are grafted, and they become Israelites by adoption. But they're still called Israel. Now that is the Israel that is symbolized here in Revelation 7 because as the ancient literal physical Israel consisted of 12 literal tribes, so the spiritual Israel, the final Israel, also consists of 12 tribes. But, because it's not physical, but spiritual, the Holy Spirit deliberately alters the tribal roster to indicate to those who are willing to do the drudgery to figure this out, that this is not a literal, physical representation, but it is the spiritual Israel, the true Israel, the church. So when Schofield says that the church does not appear in the book of Revelation after chapter 4 or chapter 3 until the end, he's wrong. The church is right here in chapter 7. Now, it says there's this great multitude that came out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation I take to be a symbol or one of the phrases, many different phrases for what we call the church age. It's the great tribulation that Paul was referring to when he addressed the Ephesian believers as he left them there in the book of Acts. We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. It's the tribulation that Jesus referred to in the upper room when he said, in the world you will have tribulation, but my peace I live with, leave with you. Be not troubled. 
So the Great Tribulation is the entire church age. That's why it's called the Great Tribulation, because it's the whole history of the tribulation of the church. And the 144,000 then represent the true witnessing arm of the church. Why is this specified as 144,000? It's because whenever a census was taken in ancient Israel, you'll observe that it was a military census. So to any trained Jewish mind, when the text here speaks about 12,000 being selected out of each tribe, the first thought that would occur to any Jewish mind is this is a military draft. So this is the militant part of the church. So this 144,000 of the 12 tribes of the true Israel is a symbol of the energetic, witnessing, dynamic, fruit-bearing part of the church, the servants of God, the missionaries, the pastors, the laymen who are witnessing and winning people to the Lord. These are the people who witness and who produce that great congregation then at the end of chapter 7, whom no man could number. Now, as I said, I have this uh, complete exposition of the comparison of the 22 tribes of Israel, the comparative chart in an essay that is called uh, God's True Israel. I would send that free as, a, as an attachment. If you want to download it on your computer, uh, just ask, it, ask for it. And uh, I, I call it um, Re- Ancient Israel's Mysterious Tribal Rosters Explained. This, then I would conclude, is the concept that we have to set in opposition to the popular Christian Zionist movement. The only way to fight a bad idea is with a good idea. We don't believe in violence. We believe in the power of reason and good works and kindness. The exposition of the truth about the true Israel is what we have to propagate to counter uh, the destructive errors of uh, modern Christian Zionism. This is one of the uh, major defects, as I said, of, um, of Schofield's work. And I would just like to call attention to the fact that even the unbelievers have noted Schofield's impact. Here is a secular historian, Irving H. Anderson, wrote a book called Biblical Interpretation and Middle East Policy. Now this is The Promised Land, America and Israel, 1917 to 2002. Even a secular historian, if you look in the index, you'll find the name of Schofield because they recognize the impact that the Schofield Bible has had and the dispensational teachings upon the modern Christian Zionist movement, which in turn, of course, has greatly fueled and supported the modern state of Israel since 1948. I'm just hoping that something that we do and say here will help stop someone who may have been considering doing what John Hagee does, sending, and it's well known, there's no secret about it, John Hagee's church has sent not just a few hundred thousand dollars to the modern state of Israel, but several million dollars, just his church alone. And there are many good Christians who are responding to ads to give money to the modern state of Israel because by doing so, you are hastening the coming of the king. You are deceived. You should be giving that money 
to needy Christian missions who are preaching the true gospel in places like India and the Philippines and in Myanmar and in Southeast Asia. Needy missions that need only a, a couple of a thousand dollars for a van or for the support of a, of a local native Christian worker. They are begging for funds. They're always underfunded. And someone would give a thousand dollars to the modern state of Israel instead of to them. No, if we can do something here that would divert that money from going to the synagogue of Satan and into Christian missions and souls are one for Christ as a result of what we say and do here, that's all that we're here to do and we would give thanks to God. Thank you for listening. Okay, all right, so there that is and that's the conclusion. I apologize, David, again, is no longer with us. Uh, I used to have that little chart that he had um, and when I lost my email at Freedom Outpost, I lost that. Or actually, uh, nice in council. By the way, Depanda, uh, we're not talking about Mormons. I, I don't know why you keep going on about Mormons. The Bible defines sin. Let me, let me lay it out for you, uh, just so you understand. First John tells us that sin is transgression of God's law. Where is God's law found? Is it found in the Book of Mormon? No, it's not. It's found in the Bible. You can go read it in, in, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. You can also read the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. That's the giving of the law. If you're, vi if you're in violation of God's moral law, then you are sinning. You are transgressing that law. What is the answer to that? Is that found in the Book of Mormon? No, it's not. The answer is found in the New Testament. It's in the person, the work, and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was without sin. Nobody could convince him of sin because he had not sinned. He was perfect before God. And then he gave his life as a ransom for those who had sin, which is all of us who've ever lived on the earth. He gave it for his people because all had sinned. Uh, Lutzweiler had pointed this before. All had sinned in Adam. And we practically sin. Why do we, why do we do that? Because we're sinners by nature. And this is why Jesus had to come and to rescue, to ransom, to deliver his people. He didn't deliver everybody. He delivers his people, though. And I don't know who all his people are. So my command is to preach the gospel to all creatures. It is to disciple the nations, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, the Book of Mormon doesn't promote that. The Book of Mormon pro promotes fables. It promotes old customs like the temple and the priesthood. The Bible tells us about who the priesthood is. It's those who are in Christ. We have been made a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We don't need priests to go to God for us. We have a high priest that goes in between us and the Father, the Lord Jesus. He's the only intercessor. There is no other one. I know Rome puts that up, that they got their priests. You confess their things. I think Episcopalians have that st stuff too. The Pope is supposed to be a go-between. He's, you know, the vicar of Christ. All of that is contrary to Scripture. And I know they want to hold up their Bibles, but the fact of the matter is they do that. But what I want to address is this. I hope... This presentation has helped people 
I know some of you have seen that. Some of you are already light years ahead of this, and that's great, too. You're helping by putting things in the chat, and I appreciate that, uh, what you guys are doing. But here's the thing. The only reason people are so caught up in this stuff going on right now is it's headlining the news is because they think in their minds that the Israel that's sitting over there in the Middle East on that post-stamp piece of land led by a bunch of antichrists, is somehow God's people. That's why, they're, that's why they're so concerned about what's going on. I have often said that people who hold to dispensational kind of theology, if what, I, if, if what some of these people want to do to Israel, drive them in the sea and do all that stuff, I'm not one of those people. But if that were to happen, their faith would be completely demolished. Why? Because they believed that lie. And it is a lie. You notice that Dr. Lutzweiler went to the same places that I go to. Ephesians 2, Galatians 3. The whole book of Galatians is very clear about who the true Israel is, about who the true seed of Abraham is, and about who the true children of Abraham are. And this is very important. This is very important. I'm going to have the archive up, and I'm going to have this video up. If, if you want to share just the video, you don't want to, you know, my commentary at the first and all that. If you just want to share the video with friends, some of you say you've got parents, some of you have family members who are stuck in this. And there's a bunch of them in the States, especially. They've bought this theology. This is the fruit of it. What you're seeing going on right now, and by the way, let me just hit this. Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, has already shown himself for who he is. He is not a constitutionalist either. The fact he, he's okay with giving money to Ukraine, and then now he's okay taking that money he's going to give to Ukraine and give it to Israel, steal it from the people. Hey, Mike, if you hear this, you're a thief, just like all those people before you. Quit stealing our money and giving it to people because you think they're God's people because you believed a lie. Quit doing that. Oh my goodness. You talk about sin. That's a great sin right there. You shall not steal. Isn't that what the command is? What is Mike Johnson and, and the House and Senate ready to do? Funnel that money. What is Donald Trump ready to do? Funnel money. Send your boys and girls to fight for Israel. Does that sound like they're obeying God? Does it sound like they're obeying the Constitution? Does it sound like they have their, your best interests at heart? None of them do. They're all in the same club. They're all wanting to promote the Zionism. And somebody mentioned the Silk Road issue. Go and study that. All the way from China out up into Europe. Look at how the Silk Road ran. And if you pay attention to what's going on, you will see they are trying to reestablish the Silk Road. That's what they're trying to do. They're doing it incrementally, but that's what they're doing. It's all about the Benjamins, isn't it? Isn't that what, uh, what's her name up there in Minnesota? Somali chick. That's what it's about. It's about the money. It's about serving God. It's about the people of God. Isn't any of that. So some of you haven't heard of C.I. Schofield. You got a little crash course on who he is. He was a wicked man. Yeah, God used him for things. I never deny that God uses men. He does. He used all kinds of wicked men. He used Nebuchadnezzar to, to judge Israel. 
Did that make it, Nebuchadnezzar right? No. Babylon was ended up judge, being judged because of their treatment of Israel. But again, the answer to all of this is to go back to Scripture, go to the context, stay in the context, ask the Lord to open your eyes. He will do so. You know, he says you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you to ask to consume it upon your own lust. Don't do it to consume it. Ask because you're genuinely interested in wanting to know the truth. Go to the scriptures. You'll see it. It's right there. It's clear. But this will be up in the archive. You can grab the video. You can share it. You can download it. You can re-upload it to your channels if that's what you want to do. Um, I have been given the rights to the video now, as well as the other videos that we did uh, by my friend Jerry that I used to work for at Nicene Council. So I'm going to be putting up, there's more that we have from Nicene Council on my Rumble channel, Setting Brush Fires, if you want to pick that up. Um, but this will be up there so you guys can share it with people because this is, right now is the time where people are on edge about all this stuff. Why not bring the truth to bear? Tell your dispensationalists, your Zionist, your Israel supporting friends, hey, look, give me an hour and 46 minutes of your time. Just watch this video and then go through your Bible and tell me whether or not you agree with it or disagree with it. If you disagree with it, show me why you disagree with it. But at least plant those seeds. Take that video. Stick it up on your social media. Download it. Re-upload it. Do what you got to do. But let's take advantage of the time where everybody's eyes are focused on Israel and let's tell them the truth about the true Israel. And let's tell them the truth about the true Christ the one who saves sinners from their sins. And listen, he's going to save all of Israel, the true Israel. And he's going to do so for his own glory. Guys, have a great day. Catch Bradley at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, sonsoflibertymedia.com. And we'll be back with you in the morning, Lord willing, 6 a.m. Talk to you then.